Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 552 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm David Barr Kirtley, author of the book Save Me Please and Other Stories. Publishers Weekly says, Visceral settings and robust characters will have readers marveling at how much Kirtley is able to fit into a limited page count. For SFF fans with no time to sink into a doorstopper, these concentrated doses of genre goodness will hit the spot. And Kirkus Reviews writes, Kirtley employs sharp, concise prose that complements his puckish sense of humor. The author's passionate voice breathes life into this wonderful array of tales. So again, the book is called Save Me Please and Other Stories. And it's available now on Amazon.com. And our guest today is Greg Lukianoff, president of FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, a free speech advocacy group. He's also the author, along with Jonathan Haidt, of the best-selling book, The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. And in this interview, we'll be exploring his love of superhero comics and discussing his new book, The Canceling of the American Mind, Cancel culture undermines trust and threatens us all, but there is a solution, which he wrote with Ricky Schlott. And now here's our interview with Greg Lukianoff. All right, so we're here with Greg Lukianoff. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Okay, so on Twitter you said, I spent the early years of my life wondering, why the hell aren't people more blown away by the existence of narwhals? <laughs> <laughs> I felt the same way about Neutron Stars, 1960s Spider-Man cartoons, and Robotech. So, <laughs> what's so great about narwhals? What's not great about narwhals? I, I've been making narwhal jokes for years, and then it suddenly seemed like 2017 was the year that finally people were appreciating, like, there are unicorn whales? I'm like, yes, <laughs> I've been screaming this at the top of my lungs since the 70s. See, now I am not an expert on narwhals, but that's where the unicorn legends came from, right? Because people would find the narwhal horns that had sort of sloughed off and they just made up the story about horses with horns. No one really knows. You know, it, it, could, it could be that. But they, definitely when you look at the, the way the, the narwhal the tusk is shaped, um, it, it does look a lot like a unicorn horn. So that could be where it comes from. But, you know, history is weird. It could be something much dumber than that. <laughs> Are there any other amazing narwhal facts that you uh, came across in your deep dive into narwhals that they're actually uh teeth uh that, that essentially they like like they grow out of their jaws and you i actually got to see a narwhal that had a double like a like two horns coming out of the top of it <laughs> um which was so cool i was i was there was a whole exhibit on um narwhals at one of the smithsonian's i, I live walking distance from the smithsonian's i have a five and a seven year old um so you know dc is my playground yeah. So, but you, but you felt as a kid that people didn't really appreciate your, your love of narwhals. <laughs> didn't share. It, didn't share it. I was excited about a lot of stuff other people weren't excited about. Um, you know, like I, I feel like squirrels are undercelebrated, and I, and as far as animals that I, I still get excited about. I mean, elephants are amazing. You know, you know they can, they can circulate. I think they can circulate something like all of the blood in their massive bodies in, through their ears in twenty minutes, and that's one of the ways they cool their blood off. It, it is by doing that that they can produce subsonic sounds that can be heard over the course of miles. Um, like they're just incredibly neat animals. Yeah, that's really cool. And so then how about uh, Spider-Man and Robotech? Did you uh, 
people didn't share your love for those things or, or did you? I used to have to get up at 5 a.m. Um, to watch the old Spider-Mans from the 1960s, which even though they were hokey and the artwork wasn't great, I still love them because they were all the old um, Steve Ditko, you know, inspired uh, sto- uh, stories. Although actually, as far as like something that happened, I, I run a nonprofit. And I was looking at all the people who donate to my nonprofit. And at, at one point, you know, from my from the from my office, the entire office could hear me yelling, Steve Ditko, <laughs> um, because nobody else knew who he was. And I'm like, Steve Ditko donates to us. <laughs> you know, I was absolutely totally blown. Like it was like one of my lifetime achievements. And Robotech. Okay, so Robotech was impossible to find on TV as a kid. I don't know where they were hiding it. I uh, I have never completed the whole series. I should do it as an adult. And I was just always like desperately searching for Robotech. Yeah, I mean, I had the same experience where I, I always wanted to watch it. And it was just, you know, every couple months, maybe I would just happen across it and, and be really excited. But um, I just remember the, the closing credits, you would see all this amazing robot action. Um, but then at least my kid, my impression as a kid was that it was, there was not enough robot action. It was just all this boring character development. A lot of soap opera. Yeah. And I can just remember there was a scene where there was like the main character walking in the rain and he was sad because his girlfriend had broken up with him or something (laughs) like that. And I I literally cried as a kid because I was so upset that there was not more robot action. (laughs) So... Well, how did they so. defeat the Invid in the end? Do, did, did, did you even? I, I remember it no, being something. No, I have no. I, I've, I think I've only seen a handful of episodes of it, and that was you know in the eighty, like in nineteen eighty-two or something. Yeah, like. it's funny because they they fought like the, the 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 regular people, then they fought the giants, and then everyone gets destroyed by the Invid, and they seem invincible. And basically, by the last one I watched, I was kind of like, you can't defeat these guys. They're they're much too powerful. Yeah. Um, so I, I saw you, you said in an interview that you were actually writing your own science fiction stories as a kid. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, ever since I was, you know, like it, I, I think a lot of what I did would now be called stimming. Um, I would, you know, go into the basement with a string and run around and, and make up, make up stories. And sometimes I'd draw them down and I've been doing that since I was, you know, little. And now that I have a, you know, a seven year old of my own who does similar things, it's nice because when people look at kids stimming, you know, like a lot of times they, 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 they feel bad for them. And I'm like, no, no guys, that's one of my happiest memories of the kid is running around the basement, making up comic book stories and i think about these all the time man like i i always i'm always writing science fiction in my head um you know and and i probably always will be and i love what i do for my day job so like i don't want to stop uh, but i i reached a point where if i'm gonna write like um, i'm coming out with a book on tuesday and i have found that if i spend all my time like i could write op-eds and columns and still write uh, science fiction short stories. But what I couldn't do was write a book and do any other serious kind of writing, but I do really miss it. I mean, in my most recent post on Substack, um, I even will work in, you know, I'll scratch my little, um, uh, creative writing itch. And I talked about, I'm trying to make the point about how, and I forgive the expression, but how cancel culture actually undermines people's faith in experts. And I give the scenario of an imaginary, um, you know, uh, anachronistically modern uh, university in 1633. And they're just about to have a debate about uh, heliocentrism. And someone shows up and says, I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Galileo cannot make it today. He's been uh, under house arrest because he's been found guilty of heresy by the Vatican. Mm-hmm. 
But we now sent, uh, here are our approved Vatican speakers who will argue the case. And then just being kind of like, I can't trust you to be objective about this. Like how, how many of you, how, how many of these speakers of Vatican said, how many of you actually uh, believe that the, 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 the earth, the sun goes around the earth and all of them raise their hands and they're like, but they of course all claim, but I came to this objectively. <laughs> hmm. It's like, it's like, no, the, the last guy got arrested for having the other position. Well, that's that's funny because uh, the your your new book, the canceling of the American minds, it actually starts with a little bit of a fictional sort of um, you know utopian um, society kind of prologue. I, thing, I, so. I, I can't I can't help but have a little allegory. It's 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 my own my own stupid devices, but I I I love it. Yeah. Did you ever submit it? Did you ever, you never did you ever submit any short stories to any magazines or contests? Oh or yeah, I actually I actually got a few published. Some some of my best ones are, are still out there under pseudonym. Um, I I wrote a uh, my f- my friend was a character called Brie Feingold Africa. She she was a um, sort of a, a self absorbed um, a folk singer, and and I was the the librettist for the musical <laughs> about her. I used to I used to write fiction uh, quite a bit actually, and I, and it, it is true I do miss it. And like the big epic that I that I I think about all the time now is something that I, I would like to write before I die. Like a like an epic fantasy series kind of thing. Yeah, but basically the idea is that there's been a uh, basically it's religious immigrants are coming to this place that they just think is a space station, you know, um, where they can you know be free and express themselves, but also because they're being driven off their planet because the life there has gotten out of control like trees are growing through the bottom of their houses and and there's a backstory on that but when they show up what they find is this thousand year old massive thing that has just been built by this policy that anybody who comes to this uh place they have to fuse their ships together um in order to they have to stay basically you have to commit to being in this giant uh and over a thousand years it's absolutely massive and of course when you have ships um sealed together, you actually can create, you know, gigantic pieces of, of, of self-contained, you know, land and even, even forests and that kind of stuff. And if, and the reason why it's, I have so much fun thinking about it is because it's the idea of wave after wave after wave of immigration and making it a lot like the modern world, but even, even more cacophonous, even hmm. more, uh, even stranger because, um, you know, people can literally seal themselves off from each other or interact. Um, and yet, I would really like to write that. And I got really into the religion that they had. I, I called them Twelfers, that essentially they all believe in different trinities all throughout history. Um, so just as a joke, did, did you know that Pythagoras hated beans? Yeah, because he thought they had souls, right? And Is that what it was? Yeah, when people fart, because people would eat beans and then they would fart and he, would, he thought that their souls were, the souls of the beans were like escaping from your bodies. Wow. bodies. So yeah, I, I work in different kinds of trinities of people uh, living or uh, who are alive, and you know Pythagoras being one of them. I have a vague memory that didn't he? He was when he died, he was being chased, and he refused to walk to to cross through a bean field because he didn't want to crush the beans, and that's how he died. I might. Oh my god! I might. No, I didn't. I didn't know that. You might want to check that, but I, I seem to remember reading that somewhere. 
Yeah. Um, no, it, it, it's fun to think think about all this stuff. And I think I think in some cases, it, you know, as as I'm sure you've had this experience too, those little thought experiments, you know, you do in your head, it can kind of sharpen your thinking on actual things in the real world. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, and that that sounds really cool. Your your thing. I mean, I hope you uh, write it someday, and then maybe we can have you back on as a as a novelist uh, for a return appearance. I got, I got I got a while to do that. A lot of what I would, <laughs> would, would write would be kind of like um, science influence it influence kind of satire and comedy, um, and it was definitely a nice outlet. Uh-huh. Okay, so I listened to an appearance uh, that you did on the Advisory Opinions podcast with David French. Oh, sure, yeah, he's an old friend. Yeah, and you said, um, I got particularly angry about the bad trolley problem example in one episode of Voyager that I thought was actually an immoral decision where Captain Janeway put 120 innocent people and her crew in danger to save the life of one super Hitler. It's outrageous. <laughs> they basically made an apology episode for it on Enterprise. Yeah. So could you tell us about that? Yeah, it, it's one that I, I I looked at the script again, and it wasn't exactly like I remember it, but it was basically the plot was that they uh, – do, do you remember the, the species that they found in Voyager? Um, it was the one that could destroy the Borg. It was like an organic version of the Borg where, where it would um, invade you with its cells and transform you into it, but it was also like a – um, all like when you could read its brain, all it was thinking was kill, 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 kill. <laughs> and it would invade your body. And it was kind of like both a Borg and, and a disease that could kill you. And all it wanted to do was kill. Um, and it was like literally contagious. And they found a wounded one of these on Voyager. And they're like, we have to send it home. We have to rehabilitate it and send it back to its own dimension. And people in the quadrant were like, are you kidding me? We're coming to destroy your ship. That's insane. Like, get the, get that thing. <laughs> get, to, get rid of that thing. And I, I was just like, no, this is, the, this is something that sounds noble until you think about it. You're, you're risking the lives of your entire crew to save something that just murders, that had actually murdered um, in a previous episode, like the, the species had murdered billions of people. All it thinks is kill, kill, kill. Like, like it's not, this is actually not a moral decision. And then there was an episode on um, Enterprise in which uh, it, uh, Archer was um, risking the life of the crew in order to save these eggs from one of the insectoid Zindi. Um, and it, uh, it, uh, and it didn't make sense. They were kind of like, why are we taking all these risks to prote- protect these <laughs> eggs? Like th- these are enemy creatures. Like essentially they're trying to kill us. So th- basically the, the, Z- the Zindi are the people who came and, and tried to destroy the earth with a, a, with a mini malfunctioning death star. And um, and he's acting really weird. And what it turns out has happened is that the egg actually sprayed him in the face with something that made him bond with the. So he, basically, his brain was being taken over, um, and so they were able to cure him. And, and he, he he took the crew out of danger, you know, for, for protecting the eggs. I think they still figure out a way to, to 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 respect the eggs, but not in something that places a crew in danger. And I'm like, that episode is an apology <laughs> for the saving of Super Hitler by Captain Janeway. Have you ever talked to anyone who shared your feelings about these these episodes? <laughs> I have I've talked to David French about them. Da- da- David French and I became friends partially over over gabbing about Star Trek, you know, uh, er- early on in, in in our friendship. And I have to confess, I'm a bad nerd this way. I haven't been keeping up with the uh with the new Star Treks. Um partially because I've just been too busy. I've I've heard somewhat mixed things, particularly about Picard um, and also about some discovery, but I, I have fairly uniformly heard that Brave New World is great. 
Yeah, I, I honestly, I'm, I'm way behind on, on Star Trek at this point. There's just, you know, I mean, it's cool that they're putting out so much content, but it's just yeah. more than I've been able to to keep up with. So I, I've um, been trying to keep up with my, my, my first love is comic books. Um, so uh, I, I've been trying to keep up with the Marvel stuff and it has been. It has been a little disappointing lately. I, I'm watching Secret Invasion, and they make, um, which is about the Skrull takeover of the Earth, and they spend, um, they just make so many dumb decisions in it that it's hard to take the characters all that seriously. Like when they're like, you know, I'm leaving to to kill the president. You can stop me now, but you won't make it out. You know, and it's like, what, what, what just happened? Like the, you're just gonna Nick Fury's just gonna walk away while the scroll goes to kill the president. Like that doesn't that doesn't make any sense. That there, and there's lots of dumb things in it like that. So I, I've been, I liked Moon Knight. Uh, I actually kind of like She Hulk. Um, I, I, I and partially as a John Byrne fan, I, I actually you know some of the shtick in it was you know classic Byrne. Um, yeah, I, I saw I did, you, you wrote a defense of John Byrne on your uh, on your blog at one. Point. I wrote a defense of John Byrne because the, the, I, because there's a little bit of poo pooing him for th- offensive things that he said over the years, and there's certainly you know I'm a First Amendment lawyer, so it's kind of like to cut people, cut, you know, don't don't stop consuming art because some artists can sometimes be assholes. Like, like you're only hurting yourself, but also particularly since I did, I, I started this project where I just decided that every night before I go to bed, I would try to read every panel of one of the great series. The first one I did, by the way, was the incredible Hulk, partially because I was under the impression that the Hulk always kind of sucked. Um, and, and I wanted to kind of prove that in a court of law. <laughs> Um, that the court uh, that the Hulk always kind of sucked, and I discovered I was wrong. And it was just that when I was a kid, it was a period. And of course, like it's kind of funny. You say that the Hulk always sucked, but I'm well aware of the fact that once um, David, uh, what was his last name, um, t- took over the writing of the Hulk. Actually, for that matter, Byrne took it over, and then Todd McFarlane for a little bit, and then David, someone, oh my God, David Pierre. Uh, took over the writing of the of the Hulk, and it was really great for, uh, for for years and years after that. But I'd always thought that before a certain period, it'd always been terrible. And it turned out from reading the whole thing, it was just the the issues when I was a kid that really <laughs> it, it was an unfortunate bad period. Timing. Yeah, it was bad timing for the Hulk. So I did the entire Hulk, and I'm, I'm glad I did. It got really interesting in all sorts of parts. Uh, really weird, too. They would do big, strange allegories, including one that was entirely an episode that was Moby Dick. Like, they, they, they had um, uh, the Hulk become a mariner in a space ship that was going after a white whale energy creature. Very strange stuff. Um, then I did all of the Fantastic Four. Uh, and boy, was that great until the end. Um, the, uh, and I mean, oh, man, Jack Kirby and Stan Lee, there, there's like a 10 issue, 15 issue period where they introduce like Wakanda, they introduce Galactus, they introduce the Inhumans. Like it was just such a wellspring of creativity. And then it gets not so great after Kirby leaves for quite some time. And I'd honestly say that it wasn't really great again until John Byrne started again. Um, and I think that people got a little tired of him because he was everywhere and he was kind of the, uh, probably the biggest artist of, of the 90s. And really, like uh, there, there were sexier and more prestigious ones. But in terms of like the people that like uh, you, the, the person that you assumed you wanted to reboot Superman, do Man of Steel and reboot the Justice League, it had to be had to be John Byrne. 
And reading it again, particularly having seen uh, spent a lot of time with other authors, I'm like, ah, oh, dude, he deserves more credit. Like he is, <laughs> he is the heir to Kirby. Like he brings the creativity. And here's what I love, and I'm, it doesn't hurt that I'm a constitutional lawyer that, that I especially appreciate this. But he does his homework. Like he reads the old issues, he understands them, he gets annoyed with scientific things that don't make sense. He explains them in later ones, just like a good nerd should. <laughs> um, he, it was just a deeper. It was a better level of sophistication than than i appreciated even as a big john byrne fan as a kid that's really cool i mean i wanted to ask you you know so there's this whole thing in comics with uh frederick wortham and the seduction of the innocent yes. this whole moral panic and yeah. i was just curious if you know if you and, and we still I, i'm about the same age as you we, we still felt the reverberations of that even in the 80s um when i was growing up that people totally. sort of look askance at, at comic books and i was just wondering if that if just knowing about that whole thing played any role in you getting interested in free speech and you know oh yeah like i mean that. i mean i mean knowing about the comic book um you know the the, the uh, worth them and the and, and the attempt to go after ec comic books you know for example and all the horror comic books was something i definitely knew about i didn't uh study it enough um until maybe like 10 years ago um uh, and then i think the best thing written on it is a 10 site plague i think it's just excellent writing in addition to everything else um i don't remember the author but it's called the 10 cent yeah. plague and i, I highly I, I, recommend it had you it's like h-a-d-j-u i think is the something like that um oh i also should do a shout out for sean howe um his book on, on i think marvel unmasked or something like that and there's uh, another marvel one comics called- the untold story Yes. Uh, well, well there, there was one called just American Comics, though, that is definitely the best one I have read ever, or the best history of of, um, uh, of comic books I have ever read. And I really wish I really got to get better at remembering people's <laughs> last names. Um, anyway, I'll get back to it. Unfortunately, it's just oh, the history of American Comics. Anyway, sorry. Um, so one thing that I will say, though, with my First Amendment hat on is that I'm glad the first major – uh, free speech lawsuit related to um, uh, to, to, to the rights of, of kids wasn't about EC comic books because I can imagine uh, the, the the court going against it because in the early 1950s you actually have a little bit of retrenching on the side of the Supreme Court and, and they they actually go from being very permissive you know and, and going in a good direction on free speech to being and I always make this point kind of freaked out you know, by the situation of the world and they get more, they get more conservative between like 48 and, and 55 in a lot of ways. And so I think that if there had been a decision right then, it might've actually not been great for freedom of speech. So in some ways, you know, sure, comic books got less interesting and, and, and kind of more boring for a while, but it would be better that than having a, you know, a bad law come out that would that would have messed everything up. And I will say some of the sci-fi stuff and I spent uh, um, I, I really love that Marvel Unlimited lets you read all the old stuff because it's so fascinating, you know, like how messed up the original story of the human torch is, or the fact that they electrocuted Submariner in like issue seven, because he was like, he, he does this thing where he did like, just he, he attacks New York and he destroys a bunch of things, but then he puts on a costume and he, he's like, I'm going to make it up to New York. I'm now a superhero. And then, and he tries to it's like the very Superman-y looking costume, but then there's like a twist at the end where they do this thing that's very Marvel um, is like, we didn't forget about that tack in New York thing. You're still in trouble and we're going to give you the electric chair. Um, <laughs> oh my God. 
Yeah, no, it's it's it's, it's crazy, and like it's it's an image of of him in the electric chair. They really strap him in. They they shock him the whole thing. Of course, they should have considered the fact that someone who's superhumanly strong might not actually be killed by the electric chair. But yeah, it was wonderfully messed up. <laughs> wow. Um, so it's interesting. Just as I was uh, doing research just just now, I actually came across this thing from 2011 where there was a professor who was uh, got in trouble with his college for having a Firefly poster. Uh, oh, my God. That's one office. of my all-time favorite cases. That is such a great case. Um, yeah, no, thank you so much for fi- finding that one. Yeah, this was University of Wisconsin. Is it University of Wisconsin Lacrosse? was it? Um, no, or was it Eau Claire? It was one of the University of Wisconsin schools, and he was a drama professor, and he put up a, a, a sign from uh, uh, from Firefly, and, and it's Mal, you know, look at the camera, and my fellow geeks are going to kill me for butch- butchering this, but it's him saying uh, to to the doctor in the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the pilot episode, which wasn't actually the first one they showed, but in the pilot, saying, like, uh, the doctor asked, like, how do I know you're not going to kill me in my sleep? And he says... Listen, son. If I ever kill you, I'll be uh, uh, I'll be facing you, uh, and I'll be armed. Like basically, kind of and like you'll, I'm not you'll, gonna... be, you'll be armed. And you'll be armed, right? Right. Sorry. And you'll be armed. Um, sorry, that's that's <laughs> basically saying that I'm I'm not going to ambush you. I like I I fight fair, and it's a badass way to say I fight fair. Like it's totally tough and cool. And he puts this on his drama uh, uh, on the on the door with a picture of Mal, and this gets interpreted as a threat. Um, at University of Wisconsin, um, and they take it down, and they contact, and the professor contacts them. It's like, what happened? It's, and they're like, they, they initially express concern for him. It's like, so like someone put a threat on your door. <laughs> it's like, no, it's actually an opposite of a threat. It's someone saying that they won't, uh, uh, that they won't kill you in your sleep. They won't kill you when you can't defend yourself. And they're like, oh, but it mentions shooting. And and um, like, okay, this is crazy. So he puts up a sign after that saying. Warning fascism. Um, <laughs> fascism can be bad for your health. It's a little graphic with a with, with someone uh, like uh, being hit on the head by, by, by a fascist with a, with a baton. And they claim, and this is the kind of BS that I see on campuses all the time. They claim that this was even worse because it was pro-fascism. And it's like, no, he's calling you fascists and you're figuring out a way to, uh, to, to, to get him for that. And we were fighting this school and this is a school bound by the first amendment. This is not a hard case. Like this is the kind of case I would love to go into court with. Cause it's just like, give me a break. You know, we're going to mop the floor with you. Um, but, uh, the thing that really broke the case, but at first university of Wisconsin wasn't willing to do anything about it. They're just trying to ignore us. And one of the things that really helped was Neil Gaiman um, knew the professor and he did a little, uh, he, he started tweeting, defending the professor and how obviously this was a joke. And uh, he did a little video for us, which is still one of my all time uh, career highlights. Yeah. yeah and you're in the video, uh, like a, you know, Firefly t-shirt and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I I, uh, I took some criticism from a donor for I think looking like a hippie, and I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> just being authentic, man. Yeah. Well, and then there was a similar in 2014. There was a similar thing with a Game of Thrones T-shirt. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a classic. Um, so yeah, th- this is a this this is a picture. This is um, was it Suffolk Community College? It was it was um a college in I think in New Jersey. And it was a professor had a picture of his daughter 
kind of like doing a yoga pose in a Game of T- uh, Thrones t-shirt. And it's the one that says, you know, I, I come with blood and fire or something like that. Um, Khaleesi talking about her, uh, her dragons. And they claimed that that was a threat to the entire community. Um, the, it was one of the most hysterical overreactions I've seen in my career. And that's saying quite a bit. Uh, and what's funny, the funniest part of this is actually, this was on uh, Google, like the, the, the short-lived like Google Facebook thing that didn't work. And partially because people didn't understand the fact it would actually send messages to people, like a, a, an official at this university thought that it had been sent to them. But still, you, 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 get, you, you think you're being emailed a picture of someone's daughter doing yoga in a Game of Thrones t-shirt. And they likened the mention of fire to the fire of AK-47s. They sentenced him to mandatory psychological counseling uh, for posting it. It was just an absolutely insane case. And But then again, I mean, I, I, I've done this for 22 years. And you would think that I, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised by how dumb the kind of things that can get you in trouble on a campus are. But I'd say every couple of weeks, there's a new one where I'm like, oh, wow, I didn't see that one coming. Yeah. Well, I guess that brings us to your, to your new, back to your new book. So let's, mm-hmm. let's get into that. So, so again, it's called The Canceling of the American Mind. So do you want to just say a little bit about uh, what it's about and how you came to write it? Sure. I mean, it, it's a, sort of a follow-up to Coddling of the American Mind. And, and that one uh, comes from my own history of depression and anxiety. While I, was get, while I was treating that, I learned cognitive behavioral therapy. And I noticed around 2014 that it seemed as if administrators were engaging in behavior that seemed to model cognitive distortion. Like, and cognitive distortions are exaggerated thoughts that you have in your head that can make you anxious or depressed. So, like, um, catastrophizing, you know, is a famous one. Uh, overgeneralizing, um, emotional reasoning, believing that everything you feel has to be answered in some way, that essentially it's all very, very meaningful. And I saw this move to get people deplatformed really start in 2014. And the, my first thought about it was this is going to be a threat to academic freedom and free speech. But also the way this is being framed, this is also going to be a disaster for mental health because a lot of this is telling students that they are uh, uh, that they're not resilient, that they can't actually handle words, um, that they'll be permanently damaged and they'll be easily permanently damaged. And I'm like, this is a messed up thing to tell young people because this will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So in 2014, I, th- I started writing about this. I, I talked to my friend, uh, Jonathan Haidt, who's a social psychologist, and we wrote an article and later a book called Coddling in the American Minds, by the way, a title I hate, um, but making the point. And, and, and for those of you who haven't read it, here, here's the thing. It's did, not about. Sorry, did, spo- did you not pick the t- did the publisher pick the title or the publisher picked the title? I yeah, I, okay. I signed the contract under disempowered. Um, I, I sent the article to the Atlantic as um, arguing towards misery. You know, neither is sexy. You know, probably better titles from a marketing standpoint. But I fought them tooth and nail each time, and I lost <laughs> each time. But the but the point of the book, uh, the point of the book is not kids are spoiled. It's stop teaching young people the mental habits of anxious and depressed people. And so Height and I thought we might see like a tiny little downturn in young people's, uh, you know, a scholarly 3% downturn in um, uh, kids' mental health. And, and unfortunately, what we saw was complete uh, plummeting, like doubling the number of suicides, I think, from 2008 to 2017, like really awful stuff. 
So canceling of the American mind um, is kind of a follow-up. This one I wrote with a, a Gen Z young woman named Ricky Schlott. She's 23, so she was 20 when I started writing with her. Um, but I wanted the perspective of a Gen Z young woman um, because so much of coddling of the American mind was about what was happening to Gen Z young women. And so having a perspective, and you know, two old Gen Xers you know, sh- could, could use some additional insight on this. But rather than make a just straight up um, a sequel to Coddling the American Mind, like we originally planned, uh, we decided to change it up a little bit to make it more about cancel culture, because I was still dealing with people on the interwebs who would claim that, that cancel culture is just a hoax. It's not happening at all. And since I was working on campus, I'm like, no, 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 no. Something crazy has happened. There are more professors getting fired right now. There are more professors getting punished, more professors being targeted than any time since the law was established between 57 and 73. Don't tell me this isn't happening. And of course, you know, when people are hyperpartisan, they suddenly feel a little, a little more comfortable with this idea. When you point out that when I talk about the, uh, you know, the over a thousand examples of professors being targeted with about two thirds of them being punished in some way and about over, you know, about 200 of them uh, being fired, including something like 40, uh, 40 tenured professors, which is insane. Like when I started my career, one tenured professor losing their job for their speech was unheard of, or at least very, very rare. And, but about one third of the punishments come from the right. Um, and it's kind of funny, like when, when, I, when I point out that we also, you know, we take on right and left. And suddenly, like when you mentioned, when uh, you mentioned, you know, our defense of like Nicole Hannah-Jones, for example, at UNC. And, I, and if I watch someone go from totally skeptical to suddenly being like, wow, I respect this issue now. I'm like, okay, I know your respect for us increased, but my respect for you is gone because <laughs> you, you should have cared even if it was someone you didn't like getting in trouble. Free speech just for people I like is not free speech. Yeah. And definitely if you're involved in fantasy and science fiction publishing and especially YA publishing, there's no doubt that cancel culture is a huge problem and has been, uh, I mean, at least since 2013 was the first time that I know of that a writer got sort of fired just because of their political beliefs. And it's just gotten worse and worse and worse ever since. It sounds really venomous in there. What, what, what are the, and I haven't kept up as much about that. Um, but, I, but it's every time I look into it, it just sounds like a pit of vipers. Like what, what, what's it, what are some stories I should know about? Oh, well, actually I have a couple of articles I was going to recommend to people. Um, so there's an article on Vulture called the toxic drama on YA Twitter by Kat Rosenfield. Um, and then there's two articles on Reason. One is called Transgender Writer Forced to Withdraw Trans-Themed Science Fiction Story by Robbie Suave and Culture Warriors Invade Sci-Fi Fantasy by Kathy Young. And I actually have interviewed Kat Rosenfield and Robbie Suave on this podcast. So if oh, that's you're great. interested I... in the details of those, there's more than you ever wanted to know. Uh, <laughs> check out those interviews. Yeah, Kat's great. Um, Kat, Kat's always been a, you know, a uh, a fan. I finally got to meet her in person at the gala. We did we did a gala this year for we changed the foundation. We used to be the foundation for individual rights and education, and now we're the foundation for individual rights and expression because we've expanded beyond just campus. Um, and we got um, Killer Mike to speak, um, give, give this amazing talk about freedom of speech at our gala, and that was the first time I ever got to meet Cat, um, which was nice, uh, and she's really cool. Uh, Robbie, I've known I've known Robbie since he was. I mean, he I, he still looks like a kid. So <laughs> the, <laughs> you know, I've known him since he was a kid, even though he's still a kid. But I mean, I'll just I'll just say for you know that Cat Rosenfield essentially was blacklisted from YA publishing 
for just offering the most tepid pushback on another author being harassed online. And fortunately, has been able to make a really successful career um, as a novelist in sort of adult crime fiction. Uh, But she had to get a new publisher, a new agent and everything. And it was... I didn't know that part of her story. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's just so toxic to, you know, the creative process. I mean, like the, the, um, there's nothing more tedious than sci-fi in which you've decided that one of your characters is unambiguously the hero, you know, like, like essentially that's one of the reasons why the, the, I mean, everyone says this, but, uh, the classic example of course is Ray from the, from the, the, the later star Wars movies. And it's like someone who has problems is interesting. Someone who is flawed is interesting. Someone who doesn't is well, why would you even tune in? And it, it's, it really is incredibly destructive to the, to good art. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, to be a good writer, I mean, it involves taking risks and, you know, in an atmosphere where you have to be afraid that your whole career and livelihood is just going to be taken away from you in an instant. If you make the slightest wrong move, it's really hard to create good art in that yeah. kind of a atmosphere. And, and it's it, one of these things where for most of like the last 20 years, or uh, what, I don't know if it's still most, but there was a period where I felt like American art consumption was reaching a higher level of moral sophistication. You know, like if you could watch a show about, uh, you know, awful womanizer Don Draper with very like, an alcoholic with very much the message is not a good person, but so watch it with interest to figure out how he got so damaged. If you could, you know, watch a show like Breaking Bad and wonderfully be, be find yourself trapped in realizing that you've been rooting for the villain all along and still find it compelling. You know, I felt like we were moving in our art to a level of. You know, Solzhenitsyn's idea that you know the human uh, the, the human heart you know is filled with both good and evil. I'm going to butcher that as well. Um, and suddenly, it seemed like we got very quickly back to a situation of good versus evil. Uh, we we call this the third great untruth in coddling the American mind, teaching people that life is just a battle between good people and evil people. And even in comic books, you know, like the the best villains are the ones that are morally complex. I mean, that's why everyone loves Ma- my Magneto is such a compelling villain because you're kind of like, oh, you're kind of right. Although actually, no, one caveat though. There is something nice about the Red Skull because there's nothing good about him. Like there, there's something almost like it's like relaxing to be kind of like, oh, this guy's just evil. <laughs> there's nothing good about him. Not even He's not even like Thanos who thinks he's saving the world from self-destruction. He, he, he's just an evil freaking Nazi. And so punch him in the face. So the, 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 sometimes it's nice to take like a break from moral ambiguity and just, you know, watch Steve Rogers punch what is <laughs> Johann Schmidt in the face. Yeah, but I mean, you want to... Uh, a range of different types. You know, you want some characters who are just pure evil and some characters who are misguided and some characters who are gray and some characters who are, you know, well, neutral as good a good, and so on. As a good nerd, I, of course, wrote my versions of the prequels in my head um, for long before the actual Star Wars prequels came out. And in, in my version, you know, like I thought what I was going to see was a ver- was a version of someone understandably being slowly pulled towards the seduction of the dark side. I also expect the dark side to be intoxicating. I, I, I basically thought that what I was being explained, what was being explained to me was something that you ha- Jedi's had to keep. Um, they had to keep their mind from going there, so to speak. They had to remain disciplined because there was great power on the dark side. It was just 
too hard to control and too hard to not be consumed in like in the baser passions. I thought of it a lot about like the dark Phoenix saga about how like the Phoenix force, um, you know, played into all of the, uh, all, all of Jean Grey's worser kind of, kind of an intention to kind of seduced her into being more evil. And instead I got something where it just kind of seemed like one day Anakin decided he was bad. Yeah. You're no argument, no argument here. Um, but I mean, like, you know, my, my favorite living writer is George R. R. Martin. So I was really um, gratified to see that you have a, a quote from him in the book to crying cancel culture. Yes. But I, I really doubt, I, I mean, I, I really wonder if Game of Thrones would even be published today if it were, you know, written, if it was a new book from a new writer. Like, I, I, I doubt feel, it would be. Yeah. Um, so that's not a good situation at no, all. No, I, I mean, I, I, I don't think you could make um, Firefly either, you know, because you know, Firefly has, and it's something that started to come into fiction was the idea that sort of like we're, uh, the, the uncomfortable topic of rape being something that happens in war, for example, which is a horrifying thing, but it also helps you remind you that the past was genuinely terrifying, you know, like, like it wasn't some kind of thing you could look back and, uh, you know, and be just wish you were there. You have to remember how truly awful and how much uh, it was to be around in some of these, uh, in these circumstances. For sure. I mean, so, so in one of my recent interviews, I, I read this book about Roger Zelazny and just kind of, he's uh, my favorite uh, author when I was a kid. And just in passing, it mentioned that, so there was this, um, you know, during the Vietnam War in 1968, Galaxy Magazine ran this, these sort of competing petitions where like half the writers uh, were in support of the Vietnam War and half the writers were opposed to it. And it was really striking me that I can't imagine something like that happening no. today. And and as far as I know, nobody was uh, dropped by their publisher or agent or or anything like that, or even there was a discussion of that. I mean, it just seems like a... Uh, a complete, a completely, almost like a fantasy world um, yeah, from from yeah. the perspective of today. And that's and that's something that I want you know, younger people to understand is that, yeah, you know, uh, speakers would show up and would be protested. Yeah, people would you know write uh, nasty grams about professors' bad views, but there wasn't organized pushes to uh, to get speakers disinvited or deplatformed at anything like the scale we've seen in the last ten years. Or uh, and let alone to get professors fired, and they've been really successful. Oh, dirty little secret here, though. Um, a, a lot of people think that what we're saying, since I say this so often in interviews, is that for my career from 2001 to 2012 was overwhelmingly fighting administrative abuses, and then I talk about 2013, 2014, and up being students. They think that somehow that replaced the problems with administrators. But one of the reasons why it's gotten so bad on campus is many times it's administrators facilitating and working with students to do shout downs, to target professors. Um, and, and so, like, I think every time there's a shout down, every time there's like a cancel mob, every time, you know, a professor gets forced out of a job, um, the university should investigate to see if the university, if administrators within the university did anything to encourage it. Um, uh, and if they did anything, anything to stop it, because I think if they really looked into it, they're going to find that in, in many, and this happens time and time again, in a lot of the big cases, that there was some amount of administrative, you know, encouragement or involvement. And certainly too uh, very rarely, you, you know, are these, uh, are these students stopped and, it, and it's cr created a politically, like just a, such a crazy atmosphere on campus. So much so that in the book, I'm kind of like, listen, 
I would be perfectly happy if America decided that we're no longer going to get, and forgive me for sounding like a Marxist on this one, our ruling class from elite higher education, because I think elite higher education has just become a very strange, very warped, very out of touch uh, factory, so to speak. To be fair, University of Virginia finished in the top 10 of our campus free speech um, ranking, um, and so did uh at Uni- University of Chicago did uh, consistently does quite well. But other than that, I mean, Harvard finished dead last. And believe me, they earned it. Yeah, I, I would definitely have serious reservations mm-hmm. about hiring someone who went to Harvard or Yale, unless I had some um, some way of establishing that they weren't uh, nutty. <laughs> you know, I mean, <sighs> they're not going to show up and, and try to cancel everybody because that's one of the things that people ended up um, after coddling came out, like how many professors uh, sorry, how many heads of businesses wrote me in height or called us to, to say like, wow, this new crop of students from the elite schools, they think that the problem with my organization is that there are people here who have opinions they don't agree with. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, if you can't play nicely with others, you're, you're going to, if you're basically saying that this institution has to have my morality or the highway, I, I actually wrote this as a somewhat scathing response to a Harvard Crimson um, uh, reporter just like last week saying, guys, you're asking, I know that the politics are different, but you're acting just like the superior elitist from the fancy school that has always existed. The person who always thinks that they are morally, they're not just intellectually superior, they are morally superior to everybody else. And that essentially like they're there to show you the one true way. And I think that some of that arrogance among the most educated class had died down a little bit, but now it's kind of reasserted itself in a way that's so self-confident, it can't actually see how arrogant it's being. So what is the, the, the title of this book, the subtitle promises a solution to cancel culture. So what is, uh, what is the solution? None of it's easy. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we spend a third of it talking on it, uh, talking about it. You know, we talk about parenting and we give some ideas of how not just not to get your kid canceled, which all parents are worried about, but how to make sure your kids aren't cancelers is actually the bigger uh, part of the problem. You know, have kids that are willing to stand up for their friends, have kids, you know, definitely minimizing to the extent possible the role of social media in kids' lives, uh, uh, to keep it as late as possible. I, I think that's going to become increasingly uh, practical, as crazy as that sounds, um, as time goes on. I think we're learning. Like so, so, for example, as far as like a simple reform that I think made a big difference, was there a number of schools that are trying out your phone goes in your locker and at the beginning of the day and you, you're allowed to check it maybe twice, but that's it. Um, and it's been an incredibly successful intervention for, you know, breaking the the weird, distorted, hyper-reality of, of, of uh, living your life in social media battles. So I, I think that there are some reforms that K-12 can do. I have a whole thing called Empowering the American Mind about my vision for um, K-12 reform because there's all, there are all these laws that I think are poorly thought out trying to reform K-12 from saying these are the books you can't have and these are the things you can't teach. And I'm like, no, what you need is a positive vision that is just inconsistent with, with, with things like cancel culture and, and uh, hyper sort of identity focused uh, meanness. Um, so we have that for K through 12 reform. We talk about parenting. We talk about ways to keep your corporation out of, out of the culture war. And one of the ways you do that is just like I said, is make sure that when you're hiring people, it's like, listen, our 
let's let's say t- take your deepest held political belief. What if I told you that there was someone here in the office who totally disagrees with you? Would you would you want that person fired? You know, and if you can actually figure out, they're probably a more sophisticated way to do this to actually get an honest answer out of them. But you don't want to hire those people. <laughs> you know, like it's going to keep you from getting great talent. It's going to keep you from having a a, a a lively and diverse workplace. But when it comes to higher ed, man, like the, I think we got to try everything. Um, I, I definitely think we should rely less on, on elite higher education as much as we can. I even go so far as to propose if there was some insanely difficult like humanities test that you would have to read like, you know, every single book, like people had to read back, you know, when, when it was tough to get a humanities degree, maybe 50 years ago, um, understand them well, like so the kind of exam that one out of a thousand people could pass. If we had something like that, um, and that would give you a prestigious kind of like award that would be the equivalent of a BA, that would tell you a hell of a lot more than going to Harvard would at this point. And here, and here's why Harvard of the white students are either, um, this was a a stat that I read, uh, are either legacy admissions, athletes, or kids of professors, 45%. Um, And when it comes to uh, what they do when they're there, the average, average, I can't say this enough, GPA at Harvard is 3.8. So that means you could have a kid who's just a super legacy to a billion dollar donor, you know, show up and coast because I know also know from going to elite schools. Yeah, sure. It's, it's fine. To, it, it's hard to finish at the very top of your class, but failing out is almost impossible at a place like Stanford. Like it's very, very difficult. You have to like put your mind to it in order to fail out. And so what, in, what is that indicating? And meanwhile, a lot of the ideology that you're learning at Harvard is how to, you know, like how to organize to, to, to shut up people who, who, who disagree with you politically and how to organize to get your professors canceled, which is dysfunctional for a workplace as well. So I think if there was some test that could actually tell me, for example, as an employer, that you understand statistics, that you know how to write, that you're well-read, that you have a lot of discipline, um, that would be, you now have an opportunity to create a better indicator of who the best, brightest, hardest working, best hires are that could be no cost or at least low cost. I think there's a huge opportunity here because people are rightfully losing trust in, in these, uh, uh, these multi-jillion dollar <laughs> endowment yeah. universities. I mean, one thing I would really like to see is for as many institutions as possible, sign some sort of pledge that they would have like a six-week cool-down period whenever uh, social media demands that they fire or anybody or, you know, deplatform them or disinvite them or, or anything like that. That just ahead of time, they've said, like, in every situation where this happens, we're going to take six weeks before we make any decision or announcement or anything. And then, because I feel like 98% of the time, six weeks later, nobody would care. You that know? is and, that- we did. We didn't. Don't say six weeks, but definitely a cool off period is something we talk about in our corporations chapter. And so I totally agree because it is the case. Like the, these social media mobs, they feel like they're everywhere for a week. Actually, sometimes they feel like they're everywhere for two days, and people get fired in the oh, I'm taking such heat. It's like you know, guess what? They're going to turn on to something else. Two or three weeks from now, you might not even remember this happened. Um, so yeah, like a cool off period is exactly what you should do. Mm -hmm. But I also just feel like, I mean, I I think the only long-term solution really is just for people to support 
people who are canceled, you know, yeah. just on, on principle, that anytime you see someone who you think is being punished disproportionately, you just support their GoFundMe or send them an email or hire them or whatever, you know, any, support them any way you can and just try to balance out that. And, and just everybody does that throughout society, you know. Yeah, and, and definitely, and, and that comes from a more, you know, significant cultural change. Um, you know, my co-author likes to say courage is contagious. So it is the case that when people, you know, raise their hand and say, hey, no, no, that's my friend or that's a scholar I really respect, it makes a difference. I, I remember in 2020 when when um, there was just this huge uptick in attempts to get professors and students punished. Um, people, uh, some Harvard students went after Steve Pinker, who's, who's on our advisory council, and, you know, brilliant, best-selling author, um, you know, psychologist. And it was nice to see when they tried to go after Pinker for some of the stuff that he wrote, which was all true. Um, <laughs> it, it, how many of his fans and uh, other professors just kind of like, nope, <laughs> like we stand by Steve Pinker. Now, of course, he has a special advantage that he's very, he's very well known. But it is a reminder, you know, sometimes that, uh, you know, it, and actually, here's a pitch from my organization, but if you're a student or a faculty member, um, actually, for that matter, if you're, you know, a, a regular citizen, um, and you find yourself in a, a, a facing a cancel mob, contact thefire.org, uh, because we know all sorts of ways to actually deal with it, you know, to, and and we, we've been doing this such a long time. We, we know what cases will work if we just do a press release about it. We know which ones might require a lawsuit, for example. There's different tactical ways to fight each one of them, but it's always easier if people come out and show some guts um, and s say they support you. Uh, so, like, I, I think about, and I try to think about, like, what the framework, you know, for teaching people about sort of free speech culture, because we talk about the, you know, the cure for cancel culture is free speech culture. But what does that mean? And that, and of course, like it, it's, uh, since it's cultural norms, you're talking about, you know, comparing, putting a thumb on the scale for freedom of speech, for freedom to of your opinion. But we already have good idioms that kind of explain what free speech culture looks like. And they're, they're ones that people don't say as much anymore, but should. It's a free country. Everyone's entitled to their own opinion, to each their own. For that matter, don't judge a book by its cover. Um, all of all of these things, these were uh, so common that they were almost jokes. But nonetheless, we all believe them. Everyone's entitled to their opinion was something that we'd say kind of like, you know, as a cliche. But yeah, of course, everyone's entitled to their opinion. We don't seem to believe that anymore, or at least we're pretending that we don't. What you were just saying about Steven Pinker was was reminds me of one of my one of my big frustrations I've had with with cancel culture is that people who are really wealthy can can survive and can yeah. express their opinions and and they're fine and then people who aren't get completely destroyed and yeah. so so it, and it just I've just seen this so many times where you know like the exact two authors will do the exact same thing or have the exact same attack on them or something. And the one who's makes money for the publisher gets protected. And the one who doesn't gets thrown to the wolves. Yeah. And it just seems like, especially from a left-wing perspective, creating a society in which only the wealthy have free speech yeah. and everyone else has to shut up should be the last thing a left-winger should want, it seems to me. Yeah, no, I definitely, uh, as, as someone who still considers himself left of center and, um, still votes Democrat, the, um, watching my side of the political fence become more dominated by 
graduates of of fancy schools who are almost you know who are disproportionately wealthy has really distorted a lot of the thinking i think i when i was in college in the 90s i thought that the sort of working class element of the left was our sensible people and that, and that was more what was going to win over the time and i thought that some of our goofier pro speech speech codes people who thought stalin was okay type thinkers on on campuses were our sort of embarrassing little problem and unfortunately, it seems like um, uh, that on you know my side of the political fence, a lot of that has gone the exact opposite of a way that I think is healthy. Actually, speaking of that, I had a quote I was going to maybe – okay, so this is um, – I never knew this until I read a book called Panics and Persecutions, 20 Tales of Excommunication in the Digital Age. Oh. And it's just you, – you know that book? I, I should read it. Yeah, no, it's 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 all like case studies of, of different people who are canceled. But uh, just in the introduction, it had this thing I never knew. It says, at the time Orwell was writing Animal Farm in 1984, the bulk of the British intelligentsia was still scathing toward anyone within its ranks who criticized the USSR. Orwell noted, the sinister fact about literary censorship in, in England is that it is largely voluntary. Yes, you could publish unfashionable opinions, he noted, but to do so was to make sure of being ignored or misrepresented by nearly the whole of the highbrow press. Both publicly and privately, you were warned that it was not done. And that's just interesting to me that, that a writer, you know, at that time had this sort of somewhat similar experience and that, you know, that the... I just feel like people on, and I'm on, I'm no, I'm definitely, I'm a liberal atheist. I mean, but the people on the left just have this um, sense of like unquestionable moral correctness. Yeah, and I'm, well, I, I'm reading the Oppenheimer biography at the moment, and yeah, like the, the um, I kind of thought we were going to learn that lesson from Orwell. You know, essentially that the hyper doctrinaire, you know, the the person who thinks that the, I, I gave a speech. Um, called Fight the Guardians at the gala as well, um, which is one of one, one of my favorite speeches that I've ever given because I, I also am proud of it because I worked really hard on it. But it's basically saying that the type of personality that hears about uh, Plato's theory of the forms or reads the, the Republic and thinks, wow, that sounds great. You know, that essentially everybody else sees shadows on the wall, but the, uh, the intellectual can be in touch with the real and the true and the final and the beautiful. Um, and that a society run by those people would actually be a superior society. Um, what Plato is actually saying is, is, is debated, but someone who sees that and actually says, that sounds awesome. Those are dangerous people. And, hmm. I, and I make the point about like how often throughout history, like that person who thinks that um, I understand truth. You cannot, um, you have false consciousness. Um, and therefore I should be, I should have disproportionate power. Those have historically been very dangerous people. And I, and I look at some of the people that Orwell was complaining about during that period and man, like, because my, my family, you know, like we were serfs. We 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 fled the Soviet Union. My my grandfather fought fought in the in the Bolshevik Revolution as a as a serf, you know, as a you know, as but what would be later called a kulak. And of course, we lost. And I I, I really bothers me to look at. Um, there was a period where people who who were like, "Wow, we really made a mistake supporting." Those some of those monsters like Stalin and and and, and, and to be clear, then this might piss off some realists, but also Lenin. I mean, in terms of like people who were just shot in the back of the head, like Len Lenin was merciless. Um, and but there was a period, certainly in the '90s when I was growing up, where people were like, "Oh yeah, no, we were totally wrong on all that," um, because we got to see the Soviet Union 
fall and all these uh, I lived in Eastern Europe for a while there and how happy people were to be gone with this this paranoid awful system and I thought we'd won that argument and now I have to deal with pe- people on on Twitter who are kind of like oh yeah no that was all great and I'll deal, deal with tankies you know like who basically think that oh we were right after all we don't have to apologize for anything all, all that certainty and belief in the superiority of the people who will be our dictators is right. And it, it, it's, it scares the living hell out of me, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, one thing I, I want to ask you uh, before we run out of time, one thing I, I brought up with Robbie, actually, Robbie Suave, is uh, I had this idea, well, what if there was like some um, federal agency like FEMA that would come in and like help you put your life together, put your life back together after you were canceled? Because... <laughs> Being canceled is kind of like having a, a a tornado destroy your house or something. You know, it's just this thing. It kind of comes out of nowhere and just obliterates your life. And yeah. the scale of the destruction is beyond the scope of what an ordinary person can absorb. So I'm just curious, what you would you be in favor of uh, of something along those lines? I know that someone has tried to start a nonprofit that kind of did that, and I don't know what happened to it on an informal level. Uh, my, my chief researcher for, during Coddling the American Mind, who, who's a psychologist and great thinker on her own, uh, Pamela Paretsky, um, has become someone who sort of gathers together people who have been canceled, you know. Um, and I think there is actually, since so many people, so many people have been canceled at this point, it's actually kind of a big club. And getting to meet some of these people and realizing, you know, like, we'll have your back, it, it, it um is is something that can just it can feel really res- restorative to people. So I think it is happening to a degree, not necessarily on a formal level, um, but on an informal level. I do think the community of the canceled can be quite uh, welcoming to people who also feel ex- you know kicked out of society. I and mean, there's an awful lot of us at this point. Yeah, I, and, and I've actually seen some encouraging signs recently. I mean, just in the last month or so. Uh, Pen America put out this report. It's called Booklash, Literary Freedom, Online Outrage, and the Language of Harm. Yeah. And I was I was actually surprised and really encouraged to see that. I don't think that would have happened five years ago. Yeah. Um, but I, I just feel like the ground is shifting. I, I think that there's an opening, and I just hope we don't squander it. Because like what happened last time when um, the speech codes were defeated uh, largely in court from University of Michigan to, to Stanford, um, and professors stopped being psyched about speech codes and students did. There was a sense that this whole thing is over um, when really we'd gone from a you know campus free speech atmosphere that might have been an A to a C minus. I feel like we just went to an atmosphere on campus that was like a F minus and we're, we've gone up to a D plus and we, and we think it's all over. And honestly, everything going on in the Middle East, everything that's going to go on next year with the election, I don't think we are anywhere near out of the woods. No, yeah, unfortunately not. But uh, I, I just feel like, I, yeah, as you say, more and more people getting canceled and having friends canceled and colleagues and stuff. I think you know they can cancel us all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Any, anyway, um, such a pleasure chatting with you. Um, I could, I could, uh, t- you know, talk nerd stuff all day. Um, I didn't get to say on, on the air. I, I, I'm trying to read every issue of the Avengers, and I didn't. I kind of dismissed the idea that there could have been good Avengers written in the late '90s. And I've, I've been reading that the like 80 issue run that's um, the Heroes Reborn to the uh, Avengers Disassembled, and I'm really impressed. These are a bunch of storylines that I actually think were quite cool. 
Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, yeah, we are we are out of time, so I'll let you go. But do you have any other any other final thoughts or any other projects you want to let people know about? Uh, check out thefire.org if you get in trouble or are canceled, particularly if you're on campus. And check out the canceling of the American Mind, which comes out on October 17th. Yeah, all right, great. So we've been speaking with Greg Gukianov, co-author of the new book, The Canceling of the American Mind. So, Greg, thank you so much for joining us. Take care. Bye. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Greg Gukianov for joining us on the show. This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy was made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.